0: I chose the topics for this family series, and then I chose the month, and then it happened that this father sermon fell on Father's Day. How serendipitous. So we've covered marriage, two sermons on marriage, and now what we're going to do is get into parenting. And what we're going to talk about first is fatherhood. Um, Originally I was going to call this father hunger, but um, father hunger is something that we all suffer from. It's an illness we all have. It's a starving illness that we all have. But So I'm not going to explain father hunger. I think father hunger is self-evident. What I'm going to talk about is the cure for the father hunger, and that's faithful fatherhood. What does faithful fatherhood look like? Our text this morning, I'm going to be bouncing back and forth between Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, and then Genesis 2.15. So I'll, I'll let you know when I'm going to go to those two verses, but I'm going to be bouncing back and forth between them. So before we get started, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this. Um, it, every Sabbath is a Father's Day where we get to draw near to you, our Father in heaven, through the work and through the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are now here in him, and we pray, Lord God, that as we draw near to you, Father in heaven, that you, we would feel your love, that we would feel your joy, that you would, we would feel your pleasure in us, Lord God. For we are in Christ we thank you for everything that you have done. You did not leave us here on this earth uh, in, our, in our wrecked and fallen state, but you came to rescue us so that you could have us back again. We thank you, Lord God, that no, no matter how far we go, what pigsties we go and find, that you are always on the road looking for us to come home. We thank you for that, and we pray, Lord God, that as we open your word this morning, that we would understand this in a newer and deeper and a more lasting way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The state of fatherhood in the United States. I don't mean to depress anyone this morning, but we're going to talk about the state of fatherhood in the United States for just a moment. Now, 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 70% of youths in state-operated institutions are from fatherless homes. 85% 85% of youths in prison come from fatherless homes. 71% of pregnant teenagers lack a father, 71% of high school dropouts, and 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical and abuse centers, all fatherless. 50 school, uh, 56 school shooters worldwide in the modern era, 56 82% of them came from fatherless homes or from broken homes where the fathers were known abusers. It's funny how they never mention that on CNN. Of course, it's always the M16, right? 43% of U.S. children live without their dads. 43%. Now, I might add that particular statistic is from 1988. I know. <laughs> I know. million fathers in the U.S. 64.3 million fathers in the U.S. 26.5 million of them are married and living with their children's mother. That's 41%. 41%. Now, uh, about all of these statistics, the thing that I find to be fascinating is that they say fatherless. None of these people are fatherless. (laughs) Right? They they say that like like it's an epidemic. I mean, this is this is modern man. You go to these statistics and they talk about it like it's this some sort of mysterious illness they don't know how to to cure. But these these children are not fatherless. Right? The fact that they are not fatherless is the problem. Is the problem? They have fathers. Where are they? What are they doing? What are they busying themselves with while their children are suffering? Suffering. The state of fatherhood in this country is appalling. It's appalling. Many of us come from homes uh, where our dads were not exactly all stars, <laughs> but all of us actually did not get the father we deserve. Uh, I, I like to talk. You know, when you get down, sit down with somebody in counseling sessions, this is—it's not the husband I deserve. It's not the father I deserve. Yet yeah, you're right. <laughs> you deserve something a lot worse. <laughs> Now, with so few good examples, right? what is fatherhood? I'm a father now. I have six kids. And, and I, I've said before, I'll say it again, I never gave a thought to having kids. I was 25, and, I mean, you've met her. You've seen her. I was like, all right, let's do this. Let's get married. I'm a Christian now. This is what I'm supposed to do. And then the first uh, session, we sit down with Dean, and Dean says, well, how many kids do you want? I was like, kids? I don't know. I never actually had thought about it. And so I, and, and my dad I, is, is a better dad than I deserve. But what I found, like so many things, right? Here the kids start coming one after the other every two years or so. <laughs> and I've got to figure out how, how to be a father. What is it? What is fatherhood? Feminism is the result of soft men who want to be free of the responsibilities of marriage and child rearing it. Feminism was not invented by women. Feminism was invented by men. These statistics that I've read here and the sixty one million murdered babies at the hands of abortionists are both deafening statements of our failure to comprehend what is at stake in our avoidance and in our failure in fatherhood. Deafening. But it just it, it, it compounds the problem. What is fatherhood? right? They they tell us that it's drugs, they tell us that it's guns, they tell us that it's education, they tell us all these things, but it's fatherhood is the problem. But then as soon as we recognize that that is the problem, the solution actually is very difficult. What is a good father? What is faithful fatherhood? Now, this is going to seem like a weird transition, but revivalism is something that was invented by Protestants in Scotland and England and the United States, and it's a plague. It's a plague. We have no idea what true revival looks like. Generally, when people talk about revival, it's very subjective. It's very individualistic. But but this is what revival to Malachi looked like. I'm going to read these verses from Malachi. To Malachi, this is what revival partially consisted of. Chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. A land that needs revival, a land that needs the word of God, is similarly a land that needs good fathers. The children have wandered from the hearts of their fathers. The hearts of the fathers have wandered from their children. And when the word of God is restored at the center of our culture, the hearts of children will return to their fathers, and the hearts of fathers will return to their children. Generally, I mean, if you read an article or a book on revivalism, good fathers isn't usually what they say is a sign, right? Usually speaking in tongues, barking like dogs, you know, all this emotional crying. But nobody ever talks about the fact that, oh, suddenly I'm going to want to start calling my dad more often. I want to suddenly stop talking about all the failures and start talking and call him on Father's Day and thank him for all the wonderful things he did for me that I did not deserve. That's not usually a sign of revival. The restoration of fatherhood will come when the word of God's prophets and apostles is restored. Now, why? Why would restoring the word of God restore the hearts of, of fathers to their children and children to their father? Why would it do that? Why would that be the effect? It's very odd that Malachi would say this. But then, when you really stop and think, what does that even mean? How? How does that work? It's because at the center of the biblical story is a father. The first Bible author understood man's duty to God as the duty of a child to his father. The father, from beginning to end, is what the Bible is about, right? And and, and how do we get back to him? He made this world. He put us here. He gave us a good garden. He, he said, this world is very good. He gave us marriage. He said, go and fill it. And when we fell, what did we fall from? We fell from him. So he sent his son to bring us back. That's what the heart of the story is. Now, I mean, we, we've often said in the Kloss house, and I've said it from here, right, what is the Bible about? Slay the dragon, get the girl. Right? That's usually how I paraphrase what the whole Bible's about. But but who sent the dragon to or who sent the dragon? Who sent the son to slay the dragon? Right? Behind all of it is a father. Behind all of it is a king. And and so when you restore the word of God and you start reading the word of God, what you come to understand is at the heart of it is this father that we all are actually trying to get back to. And this is the most astounding part. He made a way for us to get back. He made a way for us to get back. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6. This is how Moses understood being, what, what it meant to be a person, what it meant to be a human, what it meant to be an Israelite. He says to them, do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? See, the fatherhood of God, God the father, was not some concept invented by Paul. Right? If you go back to the very beginning, he's always known as a father. He's always known as a father. God is, the right? he has chosen a people to be his children, and he cares for them and loves them like a father does his children. This is what Isaiah says in chapter 64, verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. You are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Right? Who makes children? Who makes children? A father does. So if he calls us the children of God, what does that mean? He's our father. He made us. Now, what kind of father is he? What kind of father is he? Well, I don't know. I've read Job. He's kind of a confusing dad. He seems like he's got some angst and some issues. I don't know. I mean, I read Deuteronomy. He seems like he's just a very hard-nosed guy. Well, this is what it says in Zephaniah 3.17. See, this is why when you read the Word of God and you start looking at what fatherhood looks like, when you start looking at what God the Father looks like, you begin to understand why fatherhood is restored when there is in fact a revival. This is what it says in Zephaniah 3:17. This is the heart of the father in heaven towards us his children. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness he will quiet you by his love he will exalt over you with loud singing. And this is what the son of God Jesus Christ comes to reveal to us that we have a father, not an angsty father, not a hard-nosed father, not a jerk father, not a failure of a father. We have a father who is in our midst, who is mighty, who saves us, who rejoices over us with gladness, who quiets us with his love. He exalts over us with loud singing. This is why the father likes to hear us sing, (laughs) because it's what he is in heaven doing. He's looking down on you. There you are on a Tuesday afternoon at Starbucks, and he's just humming a little tune. There's my sweet child. And now, how many of us ever think of God that way? Right? No, generally, I'm of that type where I'm like this. Oh, man, he's watching. Mm. I hope he's not paying attention right now. But he is in our midst. He looks down upon us and he sings over us. Now, how many of us wouldn't want that kind of dad? Right? Yeah, I don't have to convince anybody of father hunger. Once I start talking about this, there is something inside all of us that just responds to this. Someone who, who, who has all the, who could, has all authority, all power, all strength, all knowledge, and he looks down on me and he sings. But this is very difficult. This is very, very difficult to accept. Mike Wilkerson is a man who wrote a book called Redemption. It's, it, it's about it, it, it's a theory of counseling and, and, and what the Exodus story really has to do with a lot of us in our, in our private lives. But this is what he wrote about this subject. He says, tragically, for many of us, the father-child relationship is fraught with fear and shame and dread and disappointment or absence. For some of us, the word father has been darkened by the worst kind of evils, Can you ever hope to know God as your father if your view of father is so broken? Now, how many people are like, oh, Jesus, I can do. He seems fine. But I don't want to have anything to do with this father bit because I had a father, I had a dad, and frankly, I'm good. And so one whole third of the Trinitarian God is sort of cut off from them. Because really, honestly, if you... Jesus is the access point. He is. But he is the access point to what I call the happy land of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And it's the Father and the Son and the Spirit who created this world. It's the Father and the Son and the Spirit who redeemed us. Right? Jesus is at the center. Jesus is the one we can see. Jesus is the one that we touch. Jesus is the one that walked among us. But he came to, to give us the Father. And then the Father and the Son give us the Son. So if we, through our own negativity, through our own sinful life, and the sin not, not committed against us, if we cut off one whole third of the Trinitarian God, what we don't have the fullness of God. This is what I was talking about this morning. We wonder, he says, I will give you my fullness. And we say, okay, cool, where is it? And yet, in our, because we're broken, because this world is broken, one whole third of the Trinitarian God... Is cut off. I have a similar argument to what they call the forgotten God, the Holy Spirit, but that's a sermon for another day. Our understanding of fathers, our subsequent understanding of everything else, cannot be put right until we rediscover fatherhood. It's at the center of what ails us. It's not drugs, it's not the government, it's not the government. It's not education. It's not statism. Well, actually, let's talk about, if you're talking about the nanny state, let's think about what that means, right? Wouldn't we all rather have a nanny than a dad? The promise of the restoration of fatherhood is made to God's children. Back in in the verses that I read, the the restoration of fatherhood is made, this promise is made to God's children. This isn't just something that is a problem for the world. This is a problem for the people of God as well. There are many professing Christians who are emotional atheists. They may hold on to orthodox ideas about the father, but their hearts are are a disconnect. Our affection cools. We just don't get this father thing, and we don't want anything to do with it. In our generation, we are confronted with many social dislocations that all go back to a foundational father hunger. All men are the son of some man. All women are the daughter of some man, and far too many of them have not been examples of faithful fatherhood. We need to be careful that comparisons, okay, now this is where we're going to take a turn. This is all very grim at this point. There is something that we're yearning for, and I want to give you a glimpse of it. But, but there is one thing that with these kinds of subjects I'm always very leery of, and it's this. We're going to go and we're going to look at what faithful fatherhood looks like. We're going to look at God the Father. And, and, and the problem here is what I don't want is comparisons to then cause you to be even more discontent with the Father you've got. Okay? Are you a faithful son to the Father in heaven like Jesus is to the Father in heaven? Everyone says no, please. Okay? We all are not faithful children like we ought to be. And yet, why do we expect our fathers to have all been perfect examples of fatherhood? Right. As soon as you start thinking that way, how about you just, like I said last week, let's keep short accounts, let's uh, you know, get the log out of our own eye. What kind of kid are you? Jesus obeyed his father unto death. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you, I, when I was a kid, that is not exactly how I looked at obedience. I don't know about you. So what I don't want, right, in any of these sermons is to be sitting here locked and loaded, right, just putting shotgun shells in the, I I can't wait for Thanksgiving, baby. I got all the bitter stuff now I'm going to go at my parents with. What I want us to do is not only see and rejoice in the kind of father we actually have. I want us to get a glimpse of what kind of fathers we ought to be. What kind of, right? I call my wife the man-maker. She is the maker of men. And, and partially why I say that is, is I'm a man now, having met her in my early 20s. A large part of why I'm standing here and I look so nice and my hair is combed and I'm not living under the bridge is because I married Ann. and And I've always thought that, right? And then God, in his humor, gave us five sons. Now, why would he do that? Well, she is the maker of men. So behind, right, behind this, I'm not this, this is not just a sermon for the men. Ladies, if you want to know what to encourage your husbands in, this is it. Okay, because all too often, right, the nagging and the disrespect and, and you're seeing their failures. What would be better is to point them in the right direction. How about you try this? How about you, wifey, set up a situation where he gets to exhibit what I'm talking about? So this is a sermon for all of us. We all have father hunger. We all need to understand the father in heaven better. And there are a lot of dads in here and there are a lot of wives in here, mothers in here, okay? And so this is a sermon for everybody. What does faithful fatherhood look like? Here's one example. Luke chapter 15, verse 18 through 20. This is what... One fallen son had to say, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, so many people think this story is about sons, and it's not. It's about the father, right? I I could imagine giving half of my oh you want your inheritance early here you go and he goes and he spends it at racetracks and on harlots and dancers and bars and having parties and I'm telling you right now I would have a I I don't think I would be standing out on the road looking for him to come home that son. The point of this story is that. We have done that. The Lord gave us this world, and we went and spent it on our flesh, right? We fell out of his favor, and yet did we? Because this is a story for all of us. We look back towards home. We look back towards where we think, you know, it's better to be a slave in that house than to be in this pigsty. And when we go, there he's standing there waiting for us, looking for us. And he doesn't hold back. He comes running. You know how undignified it is for a Jewish man in this day to run? In public? That's a weird cultural thing. I, I, I appreciate it. I don't like running. <laughs> right? Jewish men don't hike up their robes and go dashing down the road after their sons, especially sons like this. But this this dad has no shame. That's his little boy. And his little boy has come home. And he doesn't care. He will put new clothes on that boy. He'll, he'll make more money and give him another inheritance. That's what faithful fatherhood looks like. So that story in mind, this is what the, the father is waiting for us to come back to him. And when we come back to him, what are we going to find? This is what we're going to find. We're going to find his presence and we're going to find his pleasure. Now, if you turn to Matthew chapter three, verse 16 to 17, we read this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, there's a couple of things I'm going to point out here. First off, God is present. God is present. This is Jesus' big day. It's his big game, right? And dad's not off at work. Right? The, the other kids are not sitting there videotaping the big game while dad is, you know, putting in a few more hours of the office. His dad is there. His dad is there. Now, we find that this is always true. His dad is always present. In John chapter 11, when he's going to the tomb of Lazarus, I love this moment because it demonstrates exactly the relationship between Jesus and his father. In that story, Jesus begins to pray and he says, Father, you, I know you hear me. And I'm simply saying that out loud so that everyone standing around listening to me will know that I am talking and boom, you're there. When Jesus wants his dad, he just looks up and he's there. He's never away from him. This is what made the cross such a terrifying thing. I think we miss this. It wasn't like... <laughs> this, is, this is how I do yard work. You know how I do yard work this way? I got these strapping boys. I sit on the couch and I drink a beer, and I send him in the front yard, and they do the yard work. Now, that's not how Jesus saved the world, right? God the Father didn't sit in heaven on the couch sipping a beer and say, okay, kid, it's your show. I've been real busy since Genesis. It's, now, it's all on you, buddy, so you go out there and get it done, and he's just up there watching reruns of Friends or something. Right? God the Father didn't stay away and send his son. The son comes in, in our midst, but what did Zephaniah say? He said, the father is also in our midst because Jesus is God come into our midst to show us that God is always in our midst. He comes up out of the water. There his father is. He goes to pray at Lazarus's tomb. There is is the father. He's standing in front of um, Pilate in Matthew chapter 26. and, And this is what he says. Hey, do you think I couldn't appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Right, He doesn't have to wonder where his dad is. He never wonders where the father is. He's never like, I don't know, where is he? Is he going to work today? Is he not here? Is he here? Is he going to be here later, Mom? I don't know. If you're the kind of dad where the kids don't know when you're going to be there and when you're not, where you are, what you're doing, then then that's not faithful fatherhood. God the Father is present always to the Son. He identifies publicly with his Son. This is crucial because fathers are all too often want to be identified with things that give them esteem in the eyes of other people. And frankly, our children are not usually that, right? Oh, I got this big promotion. Look at this big truck I'm driving. Look at how hot my wife is. Look at all this money I got. Look at these fancy clothes. We want to be known for all kinds of things. Not usually do we want to be known for, oh, hey, this is my son. I am the father of this person right here. Meet them. He identifies with his son publicly. If your parental responsibilities are not a priority or your child is in any way an embarrassment or of a secondary importance to you, it shows in your reluctance and your failure to identify with them publicly. I don't know how many times I've I've met people, and there they are, they're talking about some talk I was giving or some, some occasion in which I'm there, and we're talking about this and we're talking about that, and here's all the kids, and he doesn't take a moment to introduce any of them. And I think, I don't know what this guy's life is about. It's not these kids. And I don't know how many times I oh yeah, oh I'm here I am talking to this person. And I'm making myself look so cool. Oh yeah, I got these kids here too. I got six of them. Right? And then all of a sudden I want to brag. Right? I don't want to introduce it as me. Like, look how many. God the Father is present, and God the Father publicly says, This is my son. This is my son too often, because there are things going on, we want to distance ourselves. We don't want to be known as the, the father of so-and-so. They Sometimes kids embarrass you. I, I've been places where, you know, some poor, poor, dear kid, is like, why is that person so fat? Have you ever had kids say that? You meet some person, man, look at how fat that guy is, dad. Right? And then I just want to take the kid and push him behind me and be like, I don't have It's true, I remember doing, I, I, I put my dad in this position. I would say, sometimes, too, I'll be honest, I did it because I knew it wasn't going to go over so well. And, and so there are things that go on between fathers and sons, fathers and daughters, where we want to distance ourselves from them. But that's not faithful fatherhood, right? All of, the, all of these kids here who are statistics in the first half of this sermon are, are known for their fatherlessness. They're not known Right? Their fathers aren't identified with them and they're not identified with their fathers. Now, the tone of the relationship here the father is, he's present. He's, He's publicly announcing that he is, in fact, the father of Jesus Christ. And the tone of that relationship is pleasure. God is pleased that Jesus is his son. God the father expresses his delight. He says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, think about this for a moment. These are the first words that we hear the Father say in the New Testament. He doesn't open with a lengthy introduction and be like, okay, I've been doing a lot, and I'm tired, so I'm sending my son. He, right? he doesn't open the New Testament with some talk about himself and some recounting of all the things he does. The first time you hear God the Father speak, it's about his son and how happy he is that he is his son. Now, at this point, Jesus has not died on a cross. In fact, it's the beginning of his earthly ministry when he's baptized. Jesus hasn't done anything, right? He's a bunch of untapped potential. So the father is not happy that this is his son. He's not, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, because the son did anything, but because the son is. The son exists. And that's all that is needed for the father to have pleasure in him being his son. Just having them, it doesn't matter what they did or didn't do, having them should be the thing that pleases us as their fathers. The tone of the relationship is, this is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. This is where fatherhood reaches its ultimate expression. In human history, there will never be a more perfect father-son moment than this. This is the tone of the father and child relationship, well pleased. Well pleased well pleased however is an alien concept to many of us how often did you hear your dad say son i i am so well pleased how often in public would he just stand up and shout that's my kid and man he's awesome i am i am so pleased that that is my son what did he do nothing i don't know he's probably out in the yard making trouble but that's my boy. This is something that most of us have not heard. This is something most of us don't say. Right? We, we, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, kid, what you're not doing right. I'll tell you, kid, what you should have done. Oh, discipline? <laughs> All right, let me stretch this bad boy out here. <clears throat> when, when you just walk and be like, there they are, and for their simple existence, it's just like, I love that you are my son. I love that you are my daughter. And then at the end of this, God the Father gives Jesus the spirit. He sends the spirit down onto the son. And why is that? Because in John 3:16 we read that God so loved, he gave. Where he loves, he gives. Matthew chapter 7 verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Because the, the pleasure that he expresses to his son publicly is coupled with the giving of a gift. And not just some random gift. He's not, he doesn't come down and be like, here's a 55-inch TV. right? They haven't even invented those yet. Enjoy it. He gives him the Spirit, which is a glorious gift. But it's not just a glorious gift in an in, in abstract way. It's the thing that Jesus needs in order to accomplish his mission. The gift that he gives him is something that equips him to go out and succeed, to have power. And all of this here, right, God is present, God is pleased, God gives a gift. This is how he acts to his boy. And in the beginning, this is what he expected out of every man. Provision and protection. That's what this is all about. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, and look, let's look there. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. He, he made Adam, and he put him in the garden and said, Here, now work and keep this land. God wants Adam, the father of mankind, to work and to keep. Work has to do with nurturing and cultivating, while keeping refers to protecting, a man's duty to be a fortress. We find a working definition of masculinity right here in the beginning of the Bible, right in the first few pages. When men take up their responsibilities to nurture and to cultivate and the responsibility to protect and to guard the fruit of that nurture and cultivation, they are doing something that resonates with their foundational, creational nature. When a man provides and a man protects, he's being a man. When he fails to do those two things, he's failing to be a man. When, man walks away, when, when any man walks away from these responsibilities, in a very real sense, he is walking away from his assigned masculine identity. A man has a broad shoulders so that he can carry heavy things. Now, I know, right? Okay, oh, whew, man, these are dangerous, dangerous grounds. But we, I think, as the people of God, are still okay with generalizations. I have met a woman who picked me up and could throw me down any time she wanted. She was quite something. She was a policeman. She was fierce. But generally speaking, I can pick up most women and hurl them down because I'm bigger and I'm stronger. There's a reason that God refers to ladies as the weaker sex. This is at the very beginning. Adam and Eve are given responsibilities. His responsibility is to be big and strong so that he can provide and that he can protect. The man who gets up in the middle of the night to see what the noise is isn't doing it because he has a penis. One feminist author, I I was reading about this, is like, well, you know, it's just so arbitrary. He's got a penis, so I guess it's got to be him who goes out there and possibly dies because there's a robber in their house. Is that really what it's about? Is it really that simple? Is it really that stupid? I don't know how that woman gets her articles published, but that's that's a story for another day. The father is a provider and a protector. This is not something that we made up ourselves. This is not a pragmatic solution to certain practical problems. And we see when we reject this idea exactly what's going on. We have a bunch of children who no one is providing for and no one is protecting. At the beginning, these roles were assigned by God to the man. Man was placed in the garden with this twofold mandate in mind. This is what men are for. This is what men are for. Now, the fall consisted of sins of omission and commission. Omission and commission. Things you were supposed to do and things you were not supposed to do. Now, Adam ate the fruit, but before that, he was acting contrary to God's law. He had already failed to obey God and in inaction. God said to provide for your wife, so why is she unfed? Why is she susceptible to the temptation of, from Satan to eat something? Why is Eve out considering the food offered to her by others? If she was well fed, would would Satan offering her some fruit have any effect on her? She'd be like, no, you know, I'm not really sure who you are, talking snake. That's kind of weird all in itself. But I'm well fed, and I'm not interested in that tree because my husband has been feeding me from these 50,000 other trees that are out here. Right? I think this is something that is we really need to spend some time thinking about. She was susceptible because he had already failed to do his job. Adam was told, well, the servant steps in and offers Eve food, something that Adam had already failed to do. Christ said that doing the Father's will was food. Adam isn't feeding his wife. He's not feeding his wife. He's not teaching her the will of God, which should, be satiate, should satiate her soul, so she shouldn't be, right, the lies of Satan should have no effect on her. But she should also be well fed because there's all these trees, and Adam's a big guy who can reach up and get the big fruit. Adam's sins of omission precede sins of commission. We slide into hide-handed sin. We drift. We begin to fail to do what we ought to do before we actively do what we ought not. Think about that. Think about that. Do you want to avoid snakes coming into your garden and offering lies and false sustenance to your wife and to your children? Then what you need to do is feed them. Feed them. The little girl who wants attention from any grown man, the wife who dresses to please men, not her husband, the wife whose identity is found in anything and everything other than Jesus Christ, she is susceptible to the lies of the world. If you are feeding your wives, if you're if you're providing for your wife and your children, they should not be interested in the food from other tables. This is Biblical Ethics 101, 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And this is not having to do with economics. If, if you think your job is to simply make sure there's money in the bank, then, then this sermon is for you. You're you're there, gentlemen, to provide so much more than just cash. <laughs> There's heart, little hearts and little souls, little ears, who are dying for someone to tell them that someone is pleased with what they're doing. God's giving is about more than necessities, right? You don't just wander around the house and be like, okay, here's some cash. Uh, I see you got toothbrush there. Everybody's got a change of clothes. Awesome. I'll be in the garage right? That's not fatherhood. That's not. Kids can be wearisome, though, can't they? (laughs) Dad, read the story again. I've read the story 50 times today. Well, Dad, just one more time. Throw the ball, throw the ball, and you're sitting there, and you throw the ball. It's like, kid, could you get tired already? I'm tired, man. Go clean your room. Now, this is, this is what this is really all about. Don't be a prudish, no, 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 killjoy. Say yes. Do you wanna, do you want to be a faithful father? Say yes. Say yes. Say yes. Say yes. Say yes. Have an orientation towards yes, toward giving, toward providing. Give as much as you can, as often as you can. There's money in my pockets right now, kids. Here you go. Well, dad, what, I mean, You pay us on Friday for chores. I know. You're the dad of the house. You're the only one, one of the only two, that can drive the car and know where the Baskin and Robbins is. (laughs) You You want me to read the story again? Let's read it again. You want me to draw some more? Let's draw some more. You want me to throw the ball? I'll keep throwing the ball. Be oriented towards yes. Men can handle hardships, but if you want to see what the real character of a man is, give a man power. I I mean, men can be stoic in an instant. They can bear up under some difficult stuff. But you want to see what a real man is made of. Give him power. A man who is saying no because he can, because he is lording it over his children, right? I have caught myself saying that. Well, you know, really, all this stuff is mine. I have actually said that to them. You don't really own anything. And so be careful with my toys. (laughs) Right? Why are you treating my toys this way? That's not yours. But Daddy, you gave it to me at Christmas. Yeah, I just loaned it to you. <laughs> right? And this is what we do. This is like lording them over. Well, you know, all these stakes are mine. If you're good, I'll give you one. I know, my, my kid laughed. Did you hear that? <laughs> if you are withholding because you can, because you want to see them grow tough, because you want to see them grow up to be harder, that is evil and that is diabolical. And and ladies, I I see confused looks, but I'm sorry. The men know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, when I was your age, you want gas for that lawnmower? (laughs) Good luck. Here's some scissors. And, And this is the kind of stuff men do because we want them to be tough, right? That's not making them tough. That's making them hate you. If you're going to say no, you shouldn't. You should say no as little as possible. But if you are, you always have to preface it just like God the Father did. Say no because it's followed by a yes. It's followed by a something better. No, kids, you want candy right now at dinner time? No way. Because I have this giant table full of all this wonderful food that I'm going to give to you. In Ephesians 5.18, it says this, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk with this, because I want you, frankly, to get drunk with the Spirit. (laughs) That's God the Father. No, I don't eat at that table. That's a table of demons. Come here and eat at the table of my son. You will be fuller. If you're going to say no, try not to, but if you're going to, have another yes in mind. I'm saying no to this because I'm going to give you this. That what that will guard us from is that nonsense I was talking about earlier, where we're just trying to be the tough guy. Grace is not is not sloppy. Grace is not limp wristed. Grace is not doormatish. Grace is disciplined. Grace is firm. Grace is solid. Grace is overflowing. Run a marathon of giving. A marathon of giving. Pace yourself. Say no at times because the yes is so much bigger and better. They can possibly imagine, right? Oh, I really want this thing. And in that moment when you have to disappoint them and you say no, it's followed very close with, you had no idea what else I was holding. Your father in heaven withholds nothing from you. Nothing. So why would you withhold from your children when it is in your possession to give it to them? You, your time, your praise, your love, your hugs, your money, your electricity, your running water and soda pop. Your time, your talents, your passions, your wisdom, your faith, and your candy. Share it. Give it. Overflow with giving. Romans 8.32, And he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right. Think of what Abraham was putting on the altar to serve God. Think of what God the Father was putting on the altar to serve you. And in the wake of that, right, is unimaginable giving. And this is this is the last point, right? You are supposed to say no, but not to your kids. This is what the protection portion of this is all about. In a very good world, a fallen man was told to protect God's garden. Protect it from what? If you think, right, God says this is a very good world. Here's the garden. Keep it safe. Keep it safe from what? Unless there was some trouble already written into this story, perhaps. But he tells him to to take care of it, protect it, keep it safe. Fighting did not bring sin. This is something about masculinity that we get all wrong. Right? The failure to fight is what brought the fall. The, The failure to gear up and get after Satan is what brought the fall. Had had war broken out in the garden as it ought to have, it would have remained a perfect world. Every war since the fall is the fruit of Adam's pacifism. There was a fight he should have fought right there. I love C.S. Lewis's book, Paralondra. He's trying to outwit Satan this, through this whole book. He's on this unfallen planet. He's trying to protect it. He's trying to outmaneuver Satan this way and outmaneuver Satan this way. And finally, C.S. Lewis writes one of the best paragraphs I've ever read where the main character, Ransom, realizes, you know, I've got to just punch this guy to death. If I'm going to save this planet, i got to just it may kill me, but I have just got to kill this thing. Right? And this is what masculinity sometimes is. The sacrificial play where it's, there's real blood in the game. What does a security guard do? What does a policeman do? Why does a policeman carry a gun? Why do we put soldiers on a post? A man wants to say yes, but not to snakes. A father wants to say yes, but not to schlubs. TSA agents are not the same thing as a Levite armed with swords rushing to Moses' side. Right? Think of a TSA agent for a moment. They'll toss anybody. They'll apply their wooden rules woodenly. If you go to the airport, you're like, why is that TSA agent... Frisking that 90-year-old woman. And the answer would be, well, I'm looking for terrorists. Right? (laughs) And you're like, what kind of wisdom is that? Look at that lady. She could barely get out of her wheelchair. And you're going to check her for bombs? Okay, seems smart. Don't be like that. Your default position towards your children, towards your wife, should be yes. But your default position to the things of this world should be no. No. Defend your family. You are responsible for who comes into the garden and what message they are trying to teach your wife and to your kids. Right? It's your responsibility. You should know what to say no to. You should be paying attention of what's in the garden. And if your kids are not well-fed, they're going to be susceptible to lies, and they're going to be susceptible to food from elsewhere. So your default position should be no. Yes to them, your kids, your wife, no to the world. Defend your family. You are responsible for who comes into the garden and what message they are trying to teach your wife and your kids. Fathers say yes and they say no. But why are you saying yes and why no? To whom and when? God the Father calls you to be like him, a gracious giver. Man was made to provide and protect what comes into God's garden. Be a father who wants to be a worker whose labor overflows in provision for his family. An overflow of yes. Be a fighter, not because you love fighting, but because you love what you're fighting for. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we... We should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In Jesus, God the Father has made you his child, his heir. Second Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God because he says nothing but yes to you in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God the Father is present. In Jesus, God the Father is pleased with you. In Jesus, God the Father is protecting you from Satan and sin and death. In Jesus, God the Father is providing salvation to you. This is fatherhood. This is faithful fatherhood. This is what your children are hungering for. This is what the world yearns for. Be a father like your father in heaven. Be present. Be pleased. Provide and protect. And watch. Watch. Revival spread in this land. Amen. Father God, we thank you that you are, in fact, our Father. We thank you for your Son who brought us back to you. We know, Lord God, that when we came back from our straying and from our wandering, you were there waiting for us. You are a gracious God. You are a loving God. You, 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 it's, it's nothing but yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Not for what we want, but for what we need. And, and, and your plans are so much better than ours. I pray, Lord God, that all of us here would feel in Christ your love as our Father, your goodness, your grace. And I pray, Lord, as we go from here, that we would encourage one another, that we would be faithful fathers like you are a faithful father to us. And amen.